All right. All right. Welcome. Welcome, man. I'm, I'm here with my good friend, Jeremy Painter, and he has been preaching for us um, this weekend here in Durham, North Carolina. And welcome. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's a beautiful city. Yeah, we've had a good time. We've, we've spent some time reminiscing and talking about the good old days and exploring some things in the Word of God. We've had a lot of good laughs. But I wanted to introduce our audience to you and, and the impact that you're making on, on a new generation of, of apostolic people and students. You are a professor at Urshan Graduate School and at Urshan College. And you live in St. Louis. You're from Bremerton, Washington. Right. The bustling metropolis of Bremerton. Right. And um, you you have a PhD. Do you hold multiple PhDs? Three. You have three PhDs. Well, why not four or five? Why? Just, just never again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that probably sounds crazy and a, a little bit... Um, absurd and I, I feel that uh, but there was a there was a method to the madness and and I, I suppose we'll get into that a little bit but it wasn't just I need to I need another feather or whatever it was practical well I, thought, I figured you just get in there and say ah, I just tack the third one on and my fourth one I... <laughs> <laughs> not quite never again yeah it's in my rear view mirror that's awesome well um I'm glad you have a chance to sit down and talk with us today because I think we're going to get into some fascinating stuff. We've had some conversations in private, but now moving forward, I wanted to share some of the content of what we're talking about. Um, there is a, a, a dynamic in the apostolic world that I would love to address, and that is when our students, um, when they go to universities, they run into secularism, they run into... Um, academia, they can be intimidated. They can um, kind of be like a deer in the headlights when they see sure. that coming from a just a purely spiritual background, and they run into education, and they can come out of that scarred, altered. They lose their faith, mm -hmm. and and it doesn't help that there can be a toxic liberal environment where activist professors can actually work to undermine people's faith. Mm -hmm. So you're speaking to that. You are rising up. God's raising up men like yourself and women like yourself to help provide a clear, uh, articulate, apostolic voice. That is the hope. That is my hope. Yes, sir. Well, let's jump into some stuff here. Meanwhile, on the Biblos Network... I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a, uh, a man with a, um, with a greater... Uh, understanding and wisdom yeah um, so he could capture the he could capture the gospel in a story and the story would haunt you and it would it would strike you when you first heard it but then it would really strike you a year later um, it almost stalked you and um, you know, the gospel, Jesus compared the gospel to a seed. And I found in, in uh, Brother Pugh's uh, ministry the seed quality of the gospel. A seed is very unassuming. It goes into the ground and it dies. Um, and it stays hidden. 
and you don't know that a, there's a um, there's a redwood in there. Um, it's just a very very simple, a simple organic mechanism that goes into the ground and um, and one day it pokes its head up above the soil and you didn't even know it was there and 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 uh, and then it starts taking on a life of its own and so you start seeing that the that the um, the, the gospel seed starts to edify it brings forth fruit um, that you live on later um, and that others live on so that that quality uh, I, I particularly pay homage to uh, Brother Pugh. Okay, you have said a mouthful, and we could probably spend the rest of the session unpacking some of that. And here's what I mean. The first thing is, I didn't know that you were impacted by J.T. Pugh. Yeah. yeah. He was like our uncle growing up. He would come okay. stay at our, our place in Kokomo, and he would come over for dinner, and, and he would preach things that I couldn't appreciate in my youth. But then as I became a man, he captured things poetically and with word imagery. And I'll give you an example of that. But before I do that, I also want to come back and revisit the idea of the seed. Because the Bible is packaged in such a way that simple mechanisms like a seed, which is essentially a DNA packet, that can be transferred by a bird, that can be transferred by uh, a mammal, Somebody, some animal walks through it, attaches to their fur, and, and God's creative mechanism will allow the propagation sure. of a species through that simple mechanism. And the seed is a natural illustration of the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the Capital T H E seed S E E D, right? And singular. That's as right. Paul says, yes. Of all things. Yeah. And if he's before all things, and by him all things consist, then he's the seed from which all seeds spring. And the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection, which is what a seed does, which was preached. And Psalm says that that its voice went throughout all the earth, and there's no voice or language where its voice is not heard. So. It's a cosmic and a, and, and a nature's way of describing how life works, that this thing dies. It must be buried. Burial is non-negotiable. Seeds have to be buried. And then the thing that comes up out of that is the resurrection. It's the new life. And it's far greater than the expended life that was in the seed that went in. Right. Yes, good point. So um, you, you really can't... You really can't, you can't quantify, uh, you can't, you can't work your way backwards or forwards even from a seed to a tree. Um, the reverse engineering is impossible. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you think, uh, maybe take a packet of seeds, they've been sitting on the store shelf for maybe six months. Mm -hmm. And if a couple of seeds could speak one of them might say, well, this has really been the life. Yeah. Here we are in the darkness. 
I guess this is our grave. And then somebody goes and picks up that packet of seeds. And where are we going? Oh, this is exciting. This is wonderful. And the person opens up the packet of seeds and, and then they see light. And they think, all right, we have arrived. We have finally, we have finally um, had our dreams fulfilled. And, um, and then you get put into the ground. Mm-hmm. And if a couple of seeds were planted next to each other, I suppose, um, I suppose that if they were able to converse, one of them might say, well, uh, that was a brief moment in the sunshine. That was, that was nice and that was wonderful, but it's all over now. And I guess this is, this is our end. Mm. Little tiny seeds we are. And uh, don't know what seeds means, but uh, here we are. And, and then, and then another, another voice says, No, no, I heard from an old seed one time that there's coming a day where we'll be changed. <laughs> Maybe in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Yeah. This corruptible shall put on incorruption. I heard this story. And one day we're going to not just have a glimpse of the light, but we're going to live in it. Hmm. And we're going to eat light. Wow. And then we're going to grow up 100 feet, 200 feet, 300 feet. We're going to put an armor called bark around us. The fragrance of our being is going to perfume a whole forest. There will be, over our lifetimes, a million generations of birds who are going to call us home. And thousands and thousands of millions of insects for whom will be its only universe. Squirrels will ride up and down us. Sap will fall from the tree, from us. We will every year put forth fruit, seedlings, and give birth to millions of other forms of life. And um, another voice says, keep talking. This is a nice story. Another voice says, no, stop. These fairy tales. Why don't we just sort of accept where we are? Mm. And just quiet down. And the sooner we can, uh, the sooner we can just uh, uh, sort of accept our situation, the, uh, the better off we'll be. So they, so they, uh, they, they do their best to quiet. Um, uh, they do their best to quiet that voice. And, but then, you know, the day comes. And you, you just, we're in that. We are in that, um, in that very same uh, world right now. Jesus said, you must be born of the water and the spirit. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, apparently, when we were born, the first time we were born into yet another womb. And that womb um, is this world that we're in. And um, I suppose if a, if a, uh, 
to, to transfer that analogy to say a seven or eight month in the womb infant, um, she can reach out and touch the limits of her universe, the womb of her mother. She's never seen the color blue. She's only heard Beethoven through maybe the muffled sounds uh, of um, filtered through her mother's womb. She has never, she's never tasted a strawberry. And it, let's say there were twins in the womb and they were talking to each other and, and one of them started to say, you know, we're going to run on green grass. We're going to, we're going to eat strawberries and, and we're going to see blue mountains. Well, what is blue and what is strawberry and what is taste? What is sight? Hmm. This is all impossible stuff. And yet the day comes when there's a great, a great um, uh, earthquake in the womb. And then the, the children are born. And they come out into the light. And the first thing they do is try to cover their eyes because it's too painful. And for the first time in their existence, they are hearing unfiltered sound. And it's piercing their head. They've gone from 98.6 to suddenly 70. And they scream and they cry. But then in time, that world that, um, that's, that would have seemed impossible, here it is and we're living in it and almost taking it for granted. Mm. And what if there is another world and what if this is just yet another womb? What if Jesus was right? And if we were to resist this, would we not be like those old seeds in the packet, quieting that one, or that, that one twin in the womb that says, stop, this is all there is. You must be born again of the water and spirit. Hmm. And then there's a kingdom. There is a whole other kingdom. Okay, so the the stuff that we're going to unpack here is going to be pretty mind-boggling. You're talking about transitioning from one world to another, which people have already done. They've already done that. They have already transitioned from one world one world to another. Anybody that's ever planted a seed has already experienced the death, burial, and resurrection. Mm -hmm. They've experienced Acts 2.38 which is what we're so excited about. Anybody that's been born into this world has already been born of the water and spirit one time. That's which is born of flesh. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus also said then that there, there would be that which would be born of the spirit, and it will be by water, and it will be of spirit. And when that babe emerges into this world, it'll come out crying. And so whenever I see that cry, I think of Galatians 3 and Romans 8, that that is the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Um, I've noticed before that Abba, Father, it always interested me. It's, it's, he said, Father, Father. Abba is Father in Aramaic. And if you read that in the original, it's Abba, Pater, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. the Aramaic word for Father and the Greek word for Father. And I always wondered why, why did he put two languages there? And we would cry that. Well, just like a babe comes out of a womb, out of a universe that it knows. And before that time, it would have been 
insanity to think of anything else. This is all there is. You're too superstitious. You're crazy. You lost your mind. You're, you're talking all that religious talk. That's what one twin could say to another or one seed could say to another. But the Bible says we cry, Abba, Father. And one way Paul described it, I think it was to Galatia, he said that his spirit bears witness with our spirit. The capital S spirit bears witness with our lowercase s spirit. He bears witness. And that's when a person speaks with other tongues or cloven tongues or two languages or Abba Pater. And it's his spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's a testifying that God does in conjunction with our human spirit. And um, that's what Romans 8 is trying to describe. That's what Galatians 3 is trying to describe. Um, but the idea of those universes and those resurrections and those births, it's a profound idea. I want, before we go too deep into that, I want to grab a hold of J.T. Pugh because J.T. Pugh profoundly impacted my life. So for anybody that's listening, I would recommend downloading J.T. Pugh's messages. There were messages like, um, I remember him preaching, playing the composition of life in a different key. I can remember him preaching a message called the removal of humiliation. One he preached called, um, don't fool with a fool. But the, I think the one that resonated the most with people, and this is one I want to share this story. This got me, it, it profoundly impacted how I viewed the English language. Okay. Because though he wasn't formally educated, he was a master. He was a poet prophet. Yeah, yeah. And um, he, uh, he's, he talked, uh, and the message I would love for people to download would be your first night in hell. Right. Your first night in hell is probably his most iconic message that I hear people reference. And there's a place in there for those that um, have the time to download it and listen to it. I strongly encourage you to do that because the message was preached at a youth camp first and I heard it on a grainy audio recording and Brother Pugh he um, was preaching to young people and he, he the premise of the message went like this he said um, I was I was in a I think he said a phone booth in such and such a city is this a vision or just this, this illustration? Was his, this was him opening the message, and this is where the message came from. Okay. So this right. actually happened. This wasn't a metaphor. This okay. was a, yeah. See, it's hard to tell with it. I, I, you, st <laughs> you start out, uh, we're talking about first night in hell, and, and your first words are, I was in a phone booth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and this, that, is, that, is, uh, that is Elder Pugh. Yeah. Um, these these kinds of things begin in odd places, and he captures. There's a, a phone booth has long been in culture, culture iconography, a transitional space. Isn't that? Good? It's a liminal space, like a bridge is, or like a doorway. Um, uh, it it takes you from one place to another. Yeah. So, when, when you, I, I've never heard this message right here, so you, this is all new to me. But you say. I was in a phone. <laughs> yeah, you say I was in a phone booth, and I'm okay. See, this it, this is just another. There, there's an there is just a supreme understanding 
of the art of storytelling mm. and understanding imagery, understanding their import, the tenor, the tone. You take people into certain places and you put them in transitional spaces like this. Yeah, yeah just, okay, please tell me the rest. There's a ton of things that are in that message, but I was in a phone booth. I was in a phone booth. That's right. And he, he describes finding a pamphlet that describes your first night in Paris. And he said, what you will encounter your first night in Paris, where you will eat, your mode of transportation, what to expect your first night in Paris, um, the restaurants you will visit, the sights you will see, the people you will encounter. And he said, but tonight I'm preaching to hardened young people that have seen it all. They're sarcastic. They're jaded. And you haven't repented up until this point. There's no reason to think that you would ever repent. So since most of you will go to hell before you ever go to Paris, I'm going to preach your first night in hell. <laughs> it was like a bomb went off. And we're riveted listening to this. And I remember I could, I could talk an hour on this message, and we probably need to. But one thing he said was, he went through, who you'll meet there. You'll meet Adolf Hitler there. You'll meet Benito Mussolini there. You'll meet, and he went down through the, the, the great psychopaths of history. And, and then he talked about um, some of the visions and things that God had given to him about this particular topic. But the one that I remember that, that really resonates was the mode of transportation. He said, how will you get to hell? He said, the Bible says that you will be cast into the lake of fire. And he said, I don't know how to describe being cast. He said, so I'll never, this, I can still remember the nuances of this message and how much it impacted me. He said, <clears throat> I'll do my JTP voice for you. He said, Titus McDonald and I would go down to the swimming hole. There the older boys would take us younger fellas and would, would loft us up overhead. There, over, held firmly in their grasp, their strong arms, they would loft us up and they would cast us into the swimming hole. And there, that's how he'd say it, there, <laughs> there, arms flailing, legs kicking, body writhing down, 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 you will be cast into hell. <laughs> I mean, man, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew I didn't want to be cast anywhere. Yeah, that was J.T. Pugh. That all sounds very familiar, and uh, like I said, I haven't heard that one, but um, there are certain traits and characteristics and some of the things you just said that, that are um, common to his his um, his storytelling environment. Um, the swimming hole was also another one. Mm. Um, he tells uh, the story of Jack. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. I'm not. not. No, I'd love to but hear it. But it occurs in a swimming hole. Um, I can't do the JT Pew voice. <laughs> um, by the way, um, I wrote a chapter of one of my dissertations on J.T. Pugh. Really? Yes. 
That's um, fascinating. And it, the, the dissertation was on, on homiletics, and uh, so I used a couple of transcripts. This is one of them. This is the one that had the greatest impact on me, and I haven't heard, I probably only heard five or so, five, five different JTPU sermons. Um, and I've heard stories around the fringes, um, of just some anecdotes, but um, this is the one I heard. And, and, and first of all, here's how I heard it. Um, my wife and I were driving out to my mother-in-law's house for a Christmas celebration. And I was looking for Christmas tapes. Okay, and this is back in the tape era. So we're in the late 90s, and um, I, see this, I see this white tape, and it just has handwritten on it, you have a ministry, J.T. Pugh, 1981, Puyallup, Washington, um, Pastor Zimke. So um, I'm curious. I pick it up along with a couple of other Christmas tapes and we're going to ride out to my, my, my uh, mother-in-law's house. And <clears throat> we put it in and I really, I was wanting to listen to Christmas music, <clears throat> but this was intriguing to me. And I, I was really kind of drifting in life. I didn't really know where I was going and whatnot, but it was a 45 minute drive. And at a certain point, during this sermon, I couldn't drive anymore. Mm. I was, it was completely unable to drive. And my wife couldn't either. Um, he, he, he begins with the kind of um, foreshadowing story, which is very important because it anticipates a, uh, the, 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 um, the climactic story. The story is of his mother um, agreeing to come to church because the kids had gotten all the work done for the day and taking care of her work too. And so she was able to get ready to go to church. She, was, she, wasn't, uh, she wasn't baptized in the name of the Lord and, and all of that. So she agreed to come really probably to appease her children and uh, the reason why uh, Brother Pew had had such an urgency at that moment or that day to, to, to have her come to church is because he had a dream. And in the dream, uh, he saw his mother riding on the back of a fiery wave of hell. And she reached out her little hands, he said, and she cried out, Jay, buddy, save me, save me, save me. And so he told his sister about the dream, and they did everything they could to make sure Mama could go to church. And they went, and she received the baptism of the Spirit. She was baptized. And then on the way home, uh, she, I, as I recall, she leaned on the porch post and said something's wrong. And uh, I, as I, as I recall, that was her last night. Mm. She died the next day. Wow, wow. And he, his point was, you have a ministry. He was thirteen. 
And the Lord was already using him to save the people that were most important to him. Wow. And that's the preparatory story. He says that later on, um, he had a dream uh, when he was 17, I think, that uh, his one of his best friends, his name was Jack, was um, was defusing mines in the Alsace-Lorraine, mm. World War II, and one of them blew up and uh, tore Jack apart. And so he told his sister, and that day he planned to go swimming with Jack out of the swimming hole. And uh, Brother Pew used little details because details were important. You, it, in storytelling, it's you. You don't want to tell all the details. You want to select details, the telling detail, the one that sheds light on, on a characteristic, uh, the one that is able to make something more real. Uh, you can almost make something less real by too many details. But he knew, he just had an instinct for it. And he said that he walked out past the, um, I think it was the RKO Railroad in, in a hot Louisiana summer day. And he got out there to the swimming hole and Jack waded in halfway. And he turned around while Brother Pew was on the, on the shore and said, Hey, Jay, buddy. heard you had a dream last night. Your sister told me. Heard I got it, didn't I? And he said, I don't know what happened to me then, but I was too embarrassed. And I swallowed the Holy Ghost. And I just sort of kicked at the dirt, put my hands in my pockets and said nothing back. But I looked down at the water that he was standing in, and I saw around him dragonflies buzzing close to the water, making little ripples. And I heard in the tops of the trees, I heard, I heard the blue jays, and then I heard the, the crows over across in the cornfield fighting, fussing over corn. And then I saw Jack look at me again, and he said, through tobacco-stained teeth, with his dark hair parted on his suntan forehead, say, Jay, buddy, heard I got it last night, didn't I? Didn't I? Didn't I? And I said nothing. The story goes that Jack was drafted into the into World War II, Brother Pugh was not drafted because of a medical issue, if I'm recalling correctly. And a few years later, he came back into town after having been away for a little while, and he went into the old store where he and Jack used to go and buy a bottle of pop. And he asked the store owner, he said, 
you've seen Jack around here. And the store owner said, no, you, you haven't, you haven't heard. You guys were good friends. You should know this. He, he's, he went into world war two. He did. Yeah. He, he went into world war two. He was drafted and he, he fought in France fought past tense. You really ought to know this. Well, they say he was out there in the uh, um, Alsace-Lorraine. And he was one of those mind diffusers. And Brother Pugh said, stop. And then he told the store clerk the rest of the story mm. of how his friend died. He said, well, that's exactly it. I thought you didn't know. Wow. He said, I did. Um, the reason that story resonated with me so much, and I only started to understand it as the years passed, the seed quality. What he was able to do was he was able to show you intuitively that there are moments in life in which time intersects with eternity and they form a kind of intersection. They, 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 they form a moment of opportunity. Um, his moment was that moment there in the, at the swimming hole. And he was standing there in 1981, some 40 years after the event. And after he told the story, he began to break down and weep and sob. I'm sorry, Jack. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I heard his voice go into another register that I didn't think he had. But it was, it was the uh, uh, overcome with emotion. And, and there are moments in, in our lives that will live forever because they were caught up in eternity. Eternity came to that moment, and it lives on and on and on, and it never stops living. And he said, I still see in my mind's eye, I still see the dragonflies hovering close to the water, and I still see every ripple from their wings, and I still hear the sound of the blue jays up in the tops of the trees, and I hear the crows fussing over the corn in the cornfield, and I still see his coal hair parted on his suntan forehead, and I still see him opening up his mouth and smiling through tobacco-stained teeth and saying, Say, Jay, buddy, heard I got it, didn't I? Uh, um, I couldn't drive. Wow. Um, and my wife and I, we repented. Mm. Um, you have a ministry. You wow. have a ministry. God brings eternity into your life and he gives you moments of opportunity. And uh, uh, so that was, the, that was the tenor of the message, but also the method, the delivery, the seed quality, the, um, uh, that which would later on uh, develop in, in, uh, in terms of inspiration for me. Um, how could I, whenever I'm ministering, in whatever capacity, bring eternity here? or at least 
notice when it is here. Um, and if you think about it, that moment around the swimming hole, where else, where else do we see in the Bible of winged creatures hovering around something? Mm. See, he, I doubt, I seriously doubt Brother Pew was thinking of that. But the scripture says that there are six, six winged, six winged seraphim. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty was, is, is to come. Um, it, he, he just, that was so deeply ingrained in him that he didn't have to plan that. And he didn't have to explain it to anybody else. These are things that, that you recognize later. There are these eternal images. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's, that is so fitting. It is so indicative of how he ministered. And that was a seed in your life that unpacked a literary poetic DNA, a ministry dynamic that would bring forth redwoods, not just a redwood, but an actual forest. The actual prototype of the forest is in that little nondescript DNA packet. And that's 1 Corinthians 15. That's right. That it is sowed in corruption, it is raised in incorruption, and Paul that's goes right. into great detail to describe and the resurrection. Do you think that the that the corruptible body has any resemblance to the incorruptible? Nothing like it. it. That's what he says. He's so here's Jay, here's here's Jack. He's in seed form, tobacco-stained teeth, suntan forehead. This is it. This is it. And almost in a mocking mm -hmm. way, there's nothing more than this. Mm -hmm. And God's already shown the prophet his demise. There is much more. And can you as a seed ever grasp the magnitude of the tree that you're supposed to be mm -hmm. in the life that is to come? And that's the essence of the resurrection. And people have been looking at it their whole life, not knowing what they were looking at in that simple, natural, organic, agricultural packet. Right. Okay. Six-winged angels. This is one reason why I love talking to men who love the Word of God, because there's a DNA to this that just keeps rolling and rolling. I think one man called it the, mani the, the manifold grace of God or the many-folded grace of God. It just keeps unfolding and you get to the edge of it and it unfolds. But the Bible actually tells us what those wings were for. If you read it and what you're, what you're referencing, I think is Isaiah six, mm -hmm. where he sees the vision in heaven. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up and there were angels there. And, and the Bible says that with twain, he did cover his feet and with twain, he covered his face face. And with twain, he did fly. And the point to be made is only two of them were for flying. For flying. Mm -hmm. The other two were to cover the feet and to cover the face. And, and it occurred to me one time that, that, that those are two purposes. It's to cover the feet and to cover the face. And so my mind goes to an Old Testament vision of wings restricting your feet and wings restricting your face. And then... Once I get that subject matter, I go to John 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, you cannot see and you cannot enter the kingdom 
unless you're born again, born of the water and born of the Spirit. There are restrictive elements that will stop you from walking into and seeing into. Those are the twain he did cover his feet, twain he did cover his face. And the other two, he flew. And it was a, it was a, a powerful metaphor of the Old Testament restriction that you can't walk into it and you can't see into it unless you're born into that kingdom. But once you're born again, you enter into that full-orbed wingedness. That's, that's fascinating. Of that's, the New Testament. That's, wow, that's really good. Mm. I might have to steal that sometime. <laughs> Phil. Uh, you, you know, the, 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 the menorah is really, it's, the, it's a symbol of the, of the seraphim. Um, three branches on each side yeah. and uh, the single head. Yeah. And um, they're fiery ones. That's what their name means. Boy, isn't that good? Um, and around the throne of God in Revelation 4, you have the seven, you have the seven flames. That's right. So you have a picture there of the seraphim. Yeah. Um, which turns out oddly in Revelation 5 to have been the eyes of the lamb. Yeah. And the horns. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, it's just fascinating. How deep have you gone into those sevens? Well, um, well, I, I, one of my dissertations was on Johannine literature. And so um, uh, isoceptisms are pretty, uh, gematria was a, a, is a pretty um, potent factor in Johannine This texts. is one reason I love you, man. To get into gematria on a podcast, my brother Joel and I have extensively looked at gematria and in particular the sevens and the twelves. And I don't mean to bore anybody, but I'm going to tell you that there is a biblical wisdom. One of the places we see the, the sevens emerge is in Isaiah 11, where the Bible says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit, now here, here's the sevens. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's the main trunk. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This is what gives light to man. This is what, this is what lightens the darkness of barbarity and the insanity of fallenness, the depravity the gross darkness. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I believe that the lamp to our feet and the light to our path is the word of God, and it is lit by these dynamics. Oh, interesting. And the sevens in the Bible, oh, this is so mind-boggling. The sevens in the Bible are all taken from those seven spirits that are before the throne. Everything comes from the heavenly pattern. He tells Moses, see that they'll make it according to the pattern that I showed thee in the mount. So Moses forms these seven candlesticks because he sees them in heaven. They are these seven spirits here. So whenever you read of a work of the spirit, whenever you read of a, of a flaming evangel, whenever you read of some supernatural event, and I mean, okay, let's just go through a couple of them. Uh, the, I think it's Elisha who raises the boy from the dead, might be Elijah, when he is raised from the dead, he sneezes seven times. Mm -hmm. This arbitrary 
not six times, not eight times. He sneezes seven times. He dips Naaman, Eli, Elisha dips Naaman seven times, or Naaman dips seven times in the River Jordan. Hmm. Um, when you, um, when, when Joshua gets to Jericho, he marches around for seven days. And on the seventh day, he marches seven times, which is a seven times seven, which is the precursor to Pentecost, right. which is seven sevens, 49, and then on the 50th day, it's Pentecost. So these, this Gematria foundation is woven through the Bible and is a big picture into how God thinks. Those seven candlesticks represent something profound in the spirit world. It's a work of the spirit. It's uh, it's oil in the lamp. It's the flaming fire. It's yeah, that's good. And to see all that and to unpackage all that. Oh man, yeah. Well, if you if you love, if if you um, if you go down this road very far, um, you'll start to see that this is a this isn't the um, the way the ancient mind worked. Okay, I want to grab that. That is exactly what I want to get to. Because you are educated in a Western, empirical, observationist, didactic, data-driven format. Western education. That is a very different thing from the ancient wisdom sure. of the old world. But yet you can grab the nuance of both. You can put a hand on both. Yeah, uh, uh, now I have seen people go so far as to create, for instance, the, the Bible code stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, where you, you arbitrarily make up these kind of equidistant mm -hmm. rules where every six letter, <laughs> <laughs> count the th the, every six letter of every third word. Yeah. And then, it, and then if you... In this scenario, count every fifth letter of the third word that comes after the fourth word. Mm -hmm. Then you will get with Hitler, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. Elon Musk. <laughs> okay, so you, you, you can you can go you can go that far. Yeah, which would have been very very foreign to uh, to the ancient mind. But if you do this in a in a reasonable sense. Um, if, if you study this in a reasonable sense with tight controls, I mean, okay, how deeply can this go sometimes? Uh, to the point where, for instance, seven times six, six being synonymous with man, mm -hmm. six day man is created, um, 42. And the, the number 42 keeps on occurring in First and Second Kings, for instance, and then also in a couple places in Psalms. Um, for instance, the 42 children that are killed by the she-bear. Wow. Um, the 42 children of the dead king slain by Athaliah mm. um, to make sure that that line is dead no rival um there are 42 books sorry 42 psalms in the second book of the psalter mm -hmm. which leads up right 
it, the very next psalm after the, the very first psalm of the third book of the Psalter, which is after 42 psalms in that one book, the, the, the first book after that is about the early demise of the temple. Wow. The pattern seems to be that 42 is representing early death. Um, how, what spiritual edification can be, how's that fit? I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet, but, um, uh, it, it keeps on occurring in yeah. certain yeah. parts of, and it was important to apparently to the original audience, the original world, that ancient world. Right. There's another one that I can see in twelves. Um, for whatever reason, twelves, God is in, in insistent on maintaining twelves in the Bible. Now, this is something that the Western educated mind scoffs at. I've read works of, by good scholars, accomplished scholars, who just dismiss it and say, well, that's a little significance. Well, Paul wrote about it. That's part of the word of God. It matters. And we are uncovering some of those things. So <clears throat> in 12, God is very serious about keeping 12 in 12 tribes. Um, when he takes Levite as a tithe unto himself, he splits Joseph into Ephraim and Manasseh because he's very serious about keeping that 12. And then when Judas commits suicide, he hangs himself. He brings in Matthias with the casting of the lots to maintain 12. Why not just keep it at 11? But God's got a reason for whatever reason, and we start to get a picture of that reason when we look up into heaven and we see the 24 elders, the 4 and 20 elders. So there's 24 of them. Well, when you get that, it opens up a world of, of insight. Um, when Elijah goes to, to confront the prophets of Baal, he takes 12 stones, and the Bible says it was for the the patriarchs sure. of Israel. And then he takes 12 buckets of water mm -hmm. and he dumps it on there and that causes fire to fall. But when you put the two 12s together, you, you're getting the old and the new Testament, right? You're getting the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Mm -hmm. Um, when Elijah calls Elisha, he's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, right? It's 24, right? Uh, who's going to take the mantle. It's going to be the guy who understands the 24s. Okay. Now where that becomes a big deal, to me, how far are we going to take this? Because our world is built on 12s in the sense of 12 months, in the sense that um, 24 hours in a day, 12 hours at a time. And literally, when you take those 24s and you take the 7s, it's 24-7. Yeah. The planets are rotating on a cosmic dynamic Right. that God references in Revelation. So when you see 24 elders and seven spirits before the throne, there's something about planets rotating and the schedule at which they're going to do that. And time itself, how does that fit? I'll tell you. I, bring it, man. I want to hear it. All right. So, so you have the 24 elders. They're just called, these are the presbytery. Um so you have a multivalence here. You have several level, levels of, of um, application. The obvious one is the one I think you've just mentioned, the 24 elders being a representation of the church of all time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so from the patriarchs to the 
to the 12 apostles. Yeah. So this represents the church. And what do they what do they do? They 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 cast their crowns at the sound of the uh, the holy holies. And um, there's a that they okay. This is a um, um, sort of a, a mock parody of the of Roman power. You have Rome, and then you have your twenty four regions. They um, uh, of Roman power, and they um, carry out the wishes of the Roman emperor. Yes. Okay, John wants to show you. You know, it might seem that the one on the Roman throne, through his delegates, is ruling the world, and what he says goes. But let me pull back the veil. And I want you to see that even though we're a small people, Israel and the church, mm-hmm. insignificant in worldly matters, the true power in the universe is the one upon the throne, and we have been carrying out his wishes. The power lies there. Wow. But a second level. You've, you alluded to it, the 24 hours of the day. This is um, indicative of all of time ultimately being for the purpose of God's goals. Mm-hmm. And if these 24 elders are the 24 hand hours of the day mm-hmm. representing all of time and they doff they throw their crowns before the throne. This is uh, this is a an indication that time is working towards God's purpose. Mm-hmm. He is sovereign and not time. Yeah, I think the scripture says there'll be time no longer at one point. Right. It it time loses its force. It 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 seems to be the supreme authority. Yeah. Uh, there were fights in the ancient world, especially religious fights, over time. Over uh, co- they were calendrical fights. So. Uh, whose calendar do we keep? Yeah, Gregorian, Hebrew. Yes. So if you go, if you go back, uh, you have the Julian calendar uh, from Julius Caesar, and then the Augustan calendar. These are based on the solar year, three hundred and sixty days, three hundred sixty-five days. Okay. So the the three hundred sixty would be the the Jewish would have been the Jewish model, which was built on the lunar mm-hmm. system. So. Um, uh, there was a fight in Jerusalem over this. Whose calendar? Whose calendar? Our ancient calendar or this newfangled Roman calendar? Mm-hmm. Because this this is a this for them was a deeply religious matter. It it might not seem like it uh, a religious matter to us, but it matters especially when you have Sabbaths and Jubilees and you have festivals. It's built around the calendar. Right. Okay. So um, the Christianity had a, a kind of minor version of this problem over what was called the Court of Decimian controversy over which day should we keep Easter. Should it be the first Saturday after the new moon or should it be on a fixed day, the 14th of the month? Okay. Court of Decimian. And um, it's been a long time since we've had that same kind of controversy in Christianity. But the farther you go back in time, the more religious this matter becomes. 
And in fact, the Qumran community, uh, one of its major grievances against the Jerusalem priestly sect was that it had adopted certain Roman um, calendrical um, They're philosophies. They're compromising. Right, <laughs> right. And so they, they thereby declare the uh, Jewish priesthood illegitimate, and they go and form their own community at the Dead Sea. It's all over time. Wow. Who controls time? Okay. Well, here you have up in heaven the 24 hours of the day giving sovereignty over to God. But it doesn't stop there because you have the seven flaming lamps, mm -hmm. probably symbolic also in terms of uh, temporal matters of, of the seven days of the week, mm -hmm. right? But that's not all because you have four beasts around the throne. The first beast is the face of a lion, the second beast is the face of the ox, the third beast is the fa face of the human, the fourth beast is the eagle. The eagle. Mm -hmm. All right, but what is this? This is going back to Ezekiel, first of all. Yeah. But more importantly, these are the four constellations. Leo, the lion, Taurus, the ox, mm. Aquarius, the human, and Scorpio in um, in uh, Jewish astronomy, or sorry, uh, the eagle in Jewish astronomy was Scorpio. Okay, so that's so, not how people in the Western world see it. That's that's a Jewish thing, right? So what you what what you have here is what what are these in in Ezekiel? These are the figures that carry the throne of God, wheel within wheels. Mm -hmm. Wheels within wheel. That's okay. such a powerful statement. So what is what is happening? You have the 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 circular movement of the moon, the circular movement of the of the sun, the circular wheels path, within wheels. Wheels within wheels. And these constellations which seemed to the ancient world to be gods themselves ruling mankind. The Jewish prophet and uh, and, or the Hebrew prophet and then the Christian prophet, what they say is, these are just the servants. Mm -hmm. The throne of God is above all of this, and wow. they are just carrying his throne across the sky. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Oh, you have the complete sovereignty of God over time. But that's not all. That's not all. For the number 24 is also representative of the number of letters in the Greek alphabet. Alpha to omega. Yeah. Yeah. The alpha to the omega. <laughs> and there are seven vowels in the oh, Greek alphabet. my, my, my. The suggestion is... Every nation and tongue is ultimately going to confess. Yeah. Wow. So all those factors that seem to rule our lives, Rome, time, and language, are completely at God's disposal. That's what it's saying. Completely. It's not Rome. It's the church. It's not time. It's eternity. And it's not, it's not, um, it's not just one language, but all languages. All languages.
alpha to omega alpha. So that phrase, that's, it's, it's cliche to some. He's alpha and omega. He's beginning and end. Alpha and omega is the linguistic dynamic. Beginning to end is the time dynamic. First and last is the ordinal. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's wow. A, and Revelation 4 is, is it, here is the alpha picture mm-hmm. of God. Revelation 5 is the omega picture of God. So alpha, the alpha um, manifestation. He's on the throne. And why, what do they worship him for? For thou hast created all things. Okay. So there's the alpha. Yeah. You started everything. But the question is, how do you end everything? Who is worthy to loose the seven seals? Which is, um, who is worthy to bring history to its proper conclusion? Mm-hmm. Where's the Omega? So Revelation 5 shows you the same one who's on the throne. Let me show you now from a different perspective. Mm. He's as the lamb slain. And there he is upon the throne. And you start to see the, the features of the lamb emerge. Yeah. which include the seven eyes, which were there in four, but and, are the now. Se- and the seven horns. So there's a completeness there. And it's the, it's the spirits that Isaiah describes in 11, the seven administrations of that one spirit, which is the spirit of the Lord, and then the spirit of counsel, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding. In that, in that seven eyes and seven horns, to understand the Bible through that lens, instead of, you know, just thinking it's a bunch of fantastic images from Revelation that we'll never understand, to slip into that ancient mind and get that is profound. So there's some practical applications that have occurred to me. One of them is, um, you know, seven eyes. What, what, that image, what does that even look like? How, how, why are they describing it in that fashion? <clears throat> but there's a completeness there. There's a seven, the seven days of creation, um, the idea is a, sp- a spiritual work, a completed work. And when Jesus catches, when, when the men catch the woman, the Bible says in the very act of adultery, and they bring her to Jesus, they say, Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus looks at that woman. This is not uh, just a man looking at this woman. but This is the lamb that has completed vision and completed authority and judgment. Those horns are power and authority. Um, in that world, you know, the horns of the ox, uh, the horns of a deer, the horn of the heart, the horns, uh, it, it's, it's authority and power. And so Jesus has the perfect balance of both. Incomplete man says killer. Stone her, and they're looking at it with at her with two sets with with two eyes. Hmm. They're looking at her from the prism of incomplete human judgment. They're they're biased. They're they're skewed. I'm amazed that they didn't catch the guy. If they catch her in the very act, where's the guy? But in a patriarchal society, maybe his cousin was the one that caught him and let him slip out the back tent flap while they grabbed the girl and. They're going to kill her, and the guy's going to go scot-free. What kind of bias is here? What kind of improperly administered judgment are we talking about? But the lamb who has seven eyes, I wonder what those seven eyes saw. In nature, I think it's spiders 
or maybe flies that are able to see things we can't see. Um, there's several animals that can see things we can't. They can see spectrums we can't see. They can see um, ultraviolet stuff. They can see, you know, we can see the the Roy G. Biv, the seven colors of the spectrum, which is it's amazing to me that it's seven. Um, we can see those things, but there are other creatures that can see waves we can't see. Right. Um, I think flies are one of them, or spiders. It's one of the two. And I wonder what the lamb saw in that woman. I wonder if he saw her past, if he saw an abusive father or an absentee father. I wonder if he saw an abusive husband, a narcissist husband. And uh, what, what, what fragility did he observe that, that triggered his compassion and said, you, your judgment is wrong, your vision is wrong, but I'm the lamb of God. I can see her as she truly is. And he that is without sin, won't you cast the first stone? And by the way, I can see you too. I can see what you did when nobody was watching. I can see, and from the oldest to the youngest, they walk away. Because the lamb with perfect vision and perfect judgment is on the scene. That's good. That's good. And that's Jesus. Yes, it is. That's what's being unpacked there. Yeah. So um, so in Revelation 4, you have the, a scene of a throne and, and creation have created all things and then in five what do they worship him for for thou hast redeemed us mm. unto our god and made us kings and priests for thou hast created for thou hast redeemed the alpha the omega um so now when you've finished five and you see, here's the one who, here is the manifestation of God that will conclude history. Now you look back at four, and do you notice how John said when he saw the one on the throne, it was like unto a stone. And he names two jewels, and they're both red. Hmm. And then the next chapter, you had seen the lamb bleeding on the throne. Mm -hmm. um, mercy rejoicing against judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, here is, it takes, a, we can't give you one picture of God. We needed two. Because you couldn't see it from just one perspective and get the complete picture either. In fact, we're going to need the whole book because this is not the revelation. This is, it drives me crazy. I, I hate to say this. this is a little bit of a, this is a little bit of a quirk of, of, of my, maybe my personality and I'm probably too hung up on this. I don't, I don't, I, but I do want to preface this by saying this is not me being a snob. <laughs> um, I have purely theological reasons and Christological reasons for this. I don't like hearing the book of Revelation referred to as Revelations. Yeah, yeah. Because, first of all, it's not. It's not. Second of all, the singularity of the Revelation is the point. Yes. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revealing of. There's only one. And 
and uh, we're going to show you a series of images wow. for you to get the whole thing. Okay. See, these dynamics are central. The fact that it's one is a key to oneness. It's, it's a unity. And you use the word perspective, but the Bible takes a lot of time to talk about the jewels that are present in, in heaven. It describes them, and, and you're describing them here to the, the red stones. Well, those angles that are cut into those stones, they're called facets. And it is the same jewel, but it is got several facets. It reflects just a little differently. If you take light, which God is light, in him was... Um, life and the life was the light of men that was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world when you shine it through those prisms out of it comes the glory the glory the beauty the multifaceted prismatic effect of what is locked up in light revealed to man when i see that I start to understand the rainbow that God gives us in Noah's day. I even wonder sometimes if when he gives, when the father gives the son, when, when um, Isaac gives to, or when rather when Israel gives to Joseph the coat of many colors, if he is clothing him with the, the, the multifaceted light-driven an outer revelation that Jesus would then put inside of us. He wore it outwardly, but we would wear it inwardly. Um, he would take what was in the, no, the Noah's, in Noah's covenant, which was heavenly. He would clothe man with it, and eventually it would be in man. All of those facets, all of those prismatic multi-faceted effects are found in the jewels. It's found in the one dynamic that has so many perspectives and facets. To grab them all, it's impossible. That's the manifold grace of God. That's good. I yeah, you're you're talking about stuff I haven't thought about before. That's 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 incredible. We're going to have to have another session just to go. I didn't mean to dive headfirst into Gematria. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, that wasn't, when I got up this morning, I wasn't thinking that uh, this would be uh, something I would talk about today. Yeah. Gematria. But, but it's part of the scripture. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it, it is. And, um, you know, I, I suppose we don't, again, we don't see our world this way anymore. Um, but if we want to properly interpret scripture, yeah, then we, we need to, yeah, we need to dive in. Yeah. And the fact that we're dealing with time, we're dealing with, um, languages, you know, these are, these are things that are very relevant today and to unpack that ancient code of wisdom and to understand why God keeps repeating these things over and over and over again. And there's a bunch of other topics that we could discuss about it. We're going to need another session, uh, one day, um, but what I would like to key in on here um, is the fact that you, you've gone to university. We have a lot of people that are watching this and are going to be watching this, that when they get to universities, 
they're taught that religion is um, it's the product or, or it's the crutch of weak-minded people that needed to get through life. They run into secularist professors um, that are determined to undermine faith. Mm-hmm. And faith is not something that the academic world readily goes to um, and celebrates. But you are a, an apostolic boy, a Pentecostal boy, now a man, and from a little town called Bremerton, in Washington, and you have explored the halls of academia. You are a professor at Urshan Graduate School, and you are shaping and molding young minds. Now, that resonates because we desperately need that today. We don't need secularism to take the, the center of the podium and say, we own this. Mm-hmm. Um, if secularism had all the answers, we wouldn't have so many addicts and opiates and Right. Therapy and and psychology wouldn't have a 98% recidivism rate. We would have a whole lot better answers than we have right now. Yeah. So here you are. You have a hand on both worlds. How how can you be Pentecostal and be an academic at the same time? Well, I think I think our model, at least in this respect, might be the Apostle Paul, who was. Um, he was well versed in in the world he traveled, and um, I wouldn't say that this is for everybody, but there is a calling, and um, sometimes you build tabernacles out of Egyptian gold, right? Well said. Yes, uh, there are things, in fact, to be learned. The Holy Spirit has been at work in the human race since the beginning of time. Uh, the prophet Amos was um, speaking on behalf of the Lord when he spoke of, Israel, you're not the only nation I have brought out. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. So all these things are happening. And if you, know, if you think that God is only interested in what is happening here in this one region, um, you're, you're, you might be missing the bigger picture. So the whole, the, the, or the Holy Spirit is working throughout the world, preparing the way, as he always has. Um, working in the hearts of men, working in cultures, and some cultures completely reject the work of the Holy Spirit. Other cultures are more receptive to certain aspects of the truth but less receptive to others. Mm-hmm. So our job, I think, is to find out, well, what is the Holy Spirit up to in this culture? Where might we find spiritual yearnings in some of the work, the artifacts of our culture? And then, and then and once we have diagnosed this, uh, work within it. Um, for instance, the Apostle Paul goes to Mars Hill and he says, in him we live, move, have our being, and we are also his offspring. He is quoting two Greek pagan poets. He says that. He said, as certain of your own poets say. Yes, he, he prefaces one saying with that. 
But he also has another one he doesn't preface that way. But he still references it. In him we live, move, have our being, which is a direct quote. You have two poets being quoted here, Aratus and Epimenides. Mm. So he knew, he knew the verses of pagan poetry. Right. And so he's up there. He, he's, not, he's not saying, according to the prophet Amos, mm-hmm. or Habakkuk. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Athenians don't know who these people are, so but he, they do know Aratus and Epimenides. Yeah. So find out, what has the Spirit been up to? What truths have been spoken in this culture? And the culture would be familiar with but show how the Spirit has been at work and directing us towards certain truths and ultimately summed up in Christ. And I, I think that's a different, uh, maybe a different approach to a kind of isolationism, which I understand that. I, I totally understand isolationism. Um, I, I understand how you get there. You send a lot of kids off to uh, to college. They go in happy, go lucky. They go in faithful, and they come out um, secular drones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to to use a cliche, social justice warriors, I suppose, yeah, uh, would be the terminology. But um, they get brainwashed. A religion, it, they're, not they're, by education, though, by secularism. Right. It is a religion. It is a religion that is being taught there. Now there is. There is an education, but there is also the um, the uh, uh, secular assumptions that are built in. And so, if if apostolic kids can be taught how to distinguish between the religious assumptions of secularism and the truths that can be related through um, your your regular uh, your regular curriculum. Um, all the better, and and make sure that if kids go off to college, they if they do, um, they have a really strong support system. Um, because they could they could come out of that unrecognizable. Yeah. If you're not careful, and so you need to do preparatory work in advance. They need to they need before they get there, they probably need to have exposure to opposition before they ever get to the university. They need to have already a kind of attitude towards and be able to identify secularism when they see it. Yeah. Because they're going to go there to the university where they're going to be surrounded by a lot of smart people. Mm-hmm. And their professors are going to be in sometimes more articulate than their pastors back home. Mm-hmm. And if the students are not careful, they're going to weigh that. They're going to say, articulate, years of school, knows what he's talking about over here, and then back home, we're talking about something else yeah. and in a different way. And so if, if they just measure things that way, they're always going to side with the professor. Yeah, they lose their faith in a mistaken attempt to advance, a misguided attempt to find truth, not knowing they're walking right into a right. snare. Right, and the enemy will try to leverage certain grievances that the young person has yes okay so if you're sending your young person off to college and they have a problem say with holiness standards um, or dating 
uh, dating rules or whatever. Okay, those those grievances will be capitalized on. Um, so work on the attitude before they get there. Um, but I think, but I, I, I really, really believe that um, there is Egyptian gold there. Um, and we can use it to build tabernacles um, for the faith. And um, uh, so one of the best ways to help students who are being sent off to college is if uh, young men and women in the ministry will themselves learn the language and understand what their kids are going into. Yeah. And this has been my modus operandi. I want, I want to, I don't want them to be able to say, well, I'm getting this over here and then I'm getting something else over here. I want them to say, I'm hearing this level of education here, but back home, absolutely something better was happening. I was, there was wisdom, not just knowledge. Boy, that's a powerful distinction. how to unpack all of that for our audience. Uh, modus operandi is a mode of operation. It's a Latin term. Um, to understand that English, which you're a professor of English, what, what's the actual, what is the actual degree? Uh, doctor of letters in English literature, particularly okay. medieval English literature. And we were talking earlier, and you made the statement that you chose that, and you referenced it here briefly, to our better articulate the theological principles, the godly principles that, that, that you love and that you espouse and that you know hold all of reality together. Mm-hmm. So now you're, you're developing tools. You are building your arsenal by which you can combat ideologies and toxic points of view that ultimately they, they don't work because the scripture... Uh, is plain that God's ways are higher than our ways. And there's things that can look right to us in our current generation that are, are poisonous and that, that will kill us. And, and Western culture is filled with it. And when people go, go too deeply into it, they just become alcoholics and drunks because they can't face it. They can't look into the cosmic abyss and, and, and deal with it. But but God teaches that we can look into that and by the power of the Holy Ghost, not only look into it, but overcome it and understand it. Um, so <clears throat> one of the things I wanted to touch on briefly, one of the tools that helped me growing up, and you would have an, a, an innate appreciation of this, uh, loving the English language, is that it comes from uh, a Latin foundation, a Greek foundation. And um, it's something that helped me in my studies. So when I look at a word, I don't just look at what it means today in 2020. I look at what it meant originally, and I look at its etymological foundations. Um, and the Bible's filled with that. An understanding of the scripture is really enhanced by that. You can begin to understand academic speak. Um, if you develop some of the uh, appreciation for the building blocks of language. I've actually passed tests before, not knowing the answer to the question that was being asked, but knowing the etymology Mm -hmm. and how the sentence was framed. I've gotten the answer right Right. because 
the, the, the literary roots of the word. So our language, English, uh, comes, uh, a lot of it's Latin and Greek. We have a lot of our, and a lot of the Romance languages were. There's, there's commonalities in Spanish and French and English. And so um, when you read the Bible, a lot of our words spring from that. And, and a lot of my preaching, a lot of my understanding is shaped by etymological uh, dynamics. So uh, a simple illustration of this would be like the word enthusiasm. Um, well, the prefix in means in, it means inside. And thus is a, is a form of theos, and it literally means God in you. The word inspiration, it's the same thing. It's in spirit. Spirit, spiration, the, the spirit is spirit. And so I'm spirited and it's in me. Mm-hmm. Well, if we have a theological view, which theo is God, it's the same root that's in enthusiasm, and logical is from the word logos, idea or plan or knowledge of, so a theologos is a God knowledge. Mm-hmm. Okay, all of those building blocks make up our language today. A lot of academia is built on that kind of understanding. To develop it, to grow into it, to properly appreciate English, you need to have some idea of how words are formed, what words mean, so that you can have the tools to even understand what they're saying to you and not get intimidated when they talk to you. So... Um, my father took great pains to give us those tools when we were growing up. And your foray into the English language and a love for the English language and the concepts and ideas, the, the roots of these ideas and these words, they come into play in how you view the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so how much has an appreciation for that language shaped how you handle the Word of God and how you teach your students? The, the music of language um, uh, simply must be appreciated. Um, there is a, uh, there's a quality to our speech that, is, uh, that belongs to the dimension of music. Music is, a, is a, just a powerful influence. And uh, if you can use it in your speech, all the better. Um, For instance, if I were to say, um, well, here we go. All right. Fara ure, thuthe art and heavenum, sithi naman yalgad, tubicumithin riche. Iwerthothin wila on earth and swaswa on heavenum. Erna idai wam nichen love, suli us to die. And forgive us our yiltas. Swaswa way for yeveth urum yiltadam. And ne yelad the usum kustanga akalusus of uvula, sotiche. You might have picked up a couple of words. The Lord's Prayer. Yeah. That is the Lord's Prayer in, the, um, in, in Anglo Saxon, um, which is close to its Germanic roots. So for people watching, Anglo, I believe, is the word where we get anglicized and which eventually becomes English. English yeah. So those are the building blocks of our language. Right, right. So um, <clears throat> uh, the, uh, the immigrants from um, Saxony, Germany, over to Britannia um, in around the 4th, 5th century, 
Uh, they brought their language, their Germanic language with them. And this is something like what the Lord's Prayer would have sounded like uh, 1,400 years ago. And if you, were, if you were listening to that, you might have heard, while you didn't understand, you might have heard the music. Earn ye die vom love, sulius to die. Don't know what that means, but you hear the music. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in life, we trade the music for meaning. When we get to when we get to understand language, we let we hear less of its music. Um, and if if you can bring the musicality back into language, um, and and think of language as being something given by God, it has a divine dimension to it. Um, the power of words. The whole universe began with a word. And redemption is consummated, or at least propagated by, when we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. God uses words. Yeah. Um, in fact, you can't really get to know anybody until you listen to them speak. Um, it, it's a revealer of the heart. And um, so I, I thought I should myself... I grew up hearing great preachers and great preaching, and some of that was very inspirational to me. Um, and I thought that ultimately I want to be a Johannine scholar. And uh, I, I, I want to be able to, um, to communicate. Um, I want to be able to communicate the gospel, but I want to be able to learn how to tell a story. Because if there's ever anything you're going to be good at in life, it ought to be telling a story of all the things. Because everything comes down to stories. Um, We think of our lives in stories. We think of other people's as stories. They're walking, talking stories. Um, Whenever there is a war between nations, it's a war between stories, the -hmm. stories we believe about ourselves and about other people. Um, Whenever we go into an interview, the question is, we're going to hire whoever has the better story. People go home at night, every night in this city, and they turn on the TV and they're watching stories. Mm-hmm. Their lives are, are centered around stories. Um, it's so much, of, and, and I found in parenting, I needed to tell better stories than the world tells. Mm. I need to be better at that. Because their, their moral character is going to depend upon the better story. Who tells it better? And um, so I thought, if there's anything I'm going to be good at, I want it to be good at telling the story. So I went down this whole English track. So I ended up earning a, 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 a Doctor of Letters in English Literature um, because I wanted to learn from the masters of storytelling. And then use that as a servant to the communication of the gospel. Well, it's a fascinating insight into your ministry. And I know that you're going to impact a lot of people in your ministry and in your professorship. And I hope 
that the people listening to us today can get a just a glimpse of what is possible and why the word is such a um, a beautiful thing. One of the goals of the Biblos Network is to properly appreciate the word. It mean you know it's the books, it's the book, it's it's word. Um, I won't go into it right now, but maybe we can explore it another time. But it's significant that Babel was a confusion of language and a confusion of words. To babble is to speak um, improperly or confusedly or confusion. And to, even down to the core of what we are in DNA, we are literally one big word. A unique identifying word. We call it deoxyribonucleic acid. It's, it's a word. And we can be identified and picked out, and we each have a unique signature that God gave us from Genesis one, and God said to the day of to 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 the Tower of Babel, where He confuses the languages, mm-hmm. to the day of Pentecost, when He reassembles them in a new godly kingdom, and they speak with other tongues, to the end of time, when the Word is central. And the word actually has an identity. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Logos. It's God in flesh redeeming fallen man and restoring the code or the word or the language back to its original form. It's a fascinating excursion into that. I thank you for your time today. Certainly. I know you got a flight to catch, and I think we might be able to slip breakfast in here if we play our cards right. All right. So, man, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. This is a pleasure. You're talking about the things I love. Well, from J.T. Pugh to Anglo-Saxon uh, musical tonality. Not a, not a long step. It's a pretty short step. <laughs> well, hopefully it can edify everybody. Thank you for your time, and thank you for joining us today here at Biblos. Thank you.